0: Well, good morning, Genesis. My name is Michael. I serve as uh, one of the pastors here, and sincerely, just thanks for taking time on a Sunday morning to be with us. Welcome to the month of February. It's amazing how quickly January went, but uh, we are excited as we're about to begin a brand new series today. Uh, Over the past two weeks, I have been reminded in very fresh, tangible ways about the fragility and brevity of life. Uh, a friend of mine who reached out to Kyle and I on Thursday, I was a youth pastor in Columbus, Ohio um, in the mid-90s, and a friend reached out and said, Michael, one of the kids uh, that was part of the youth group uh, when you were there, a young man that actually came to Christ uh, died in a car accident uh, this morning, and his wife and left two kids behind. On, this was about a week and a half ago, a friend of mine from Genesis as well uh, lost a friend of his, a coworker, to suicide, early 30s. Another friend from Genesis uh, lost a family member a uh, week and a half ago, mid 20s, heart attack. Another friend from Genesis. Uh, all this in the last two weeks. Reached out and just said, "Hey, can you be praying because my uh, a family member was just diagnosed with lymphoma?" Now all of these stories, just within the last two weeks. It's obviously hard not to also think about what happened a week ago Sunday with the death of Kobe Bryant and his teenage daughter and seven other men and women that tragically died in a uh, helicopter crash. Like, we all know that life is very, very fragile. We all know that tomorrow is not promised or guaranteed to any one of us. We all know that our next breath is not promised to us. And so in Thinking about this, it really is leading me to ask one really big question. As I mentioned, we're starting a brand new series today entitled Just for Now. And the one question that we are going to be asking again and again over the next six weeks is this question How will you use what God has placed in your hands just for now? How will you use what God has placed in your hands just for now? Now, true for all of us here today, God's placed something in each of our hands, whether it's stories and relationships and resources and different experiences, whether God's placed in our hands different gifts and talents and abilities, again, just to name a few. And the question that we're going to be diving into over the next six weeks is, how will you use what God has placed in your hands just for now? And I want to really emphasize, not just today, but over the next six weeks, that that phrase, just for now. Because everything that God has placed in our hands, no matter what it is, no matter if it's relationships or resources, whatever it might be, everything has been placed in our hands just for now, meaning it's momentary. Today, if you're married, it's momentary. If you are single today... It is momentary. The money that you have, it is all momentary. The gifts, the talents that you have, it's momentary. The experiences that you've already had and the experiences that you will have, all of that is momentary. I really want you to catch this. Everything that we currently have, stories and situations and relationships and resources, it's all momentary it is just for now. Here's what the Bible has to say about this idea of just for now. I wanted to read to you just a snapshot of verses about how the Bible describes the momentariness of our lives. The psalmist says this in Psalm 144, man is like a breath, his days are like a passing shadow. We're in a different Psalm 102, my life passes as swiftly as the evening shadows. In a different Psalm, 39, Lord, remind me how brief my time on earth will be. Remind me that my days are numbered, how fleeting my life is. You have made my life no longer than the width of my hand. My entire lifetime is just a moment to you. At best, each of us is but a breath. Or in First Chronicles, we're here for only a moment, visitors and strangers in the land as our ancestors were before us. Our days on earth are like a passing shadow, gone so soon without a trace. Or consider the New Testament in James. Look here, you who say today or tomorrow, we're going to go to a certain town. We'll stay there for a year. We'll do business there. We'll even make a profit. How do you know what your life will be like tomorrow? Your life is like the morning fog. It's here a little while, and then it's gone. Again, just a snapshot, but are you starting to get a sense of what the Bible teaches us about life? Now, some, you might hear those verses and you'd be tempted to just create a very fatalistic view of how you should then live your life. Fatalistic meaning, gosh, if life is just a breath, if my life is at best just a mist or vapor that appears and is gone, then what is the point? Well, thankfully, the Bible doesn't encourage fatalistic living. Quite the contrary. Listen to the psalmist as he says, Teach us to realize the brevity of life so that we may grow in wisdom. Teach us to realize the brevity of life so that we may grow in wisdom. So because life is a mist, it's a vapor, it's a shadow, the Bible's response to that is, Teach me so that I might grow in wisdom. Meaning, let all the knowledge that God has placed in these hands Let all the experiences that God has placed in these hands, let everything that God has put in these hands, God, let it shape how I live and move and operate every single day. Now, if you could, just play along with me for a moment. Put your hands just out in front of you like this. Everyone do that. Play along. We're all doing it. No one looks silly. And just look at your hands for a moment with this question What has God actually placed in your hands? I want you to think about this for a moment. As you just consider your hands, what has God actually placed in your hands just for now? Clearly, we're all going to answer that question a little bit differently because God has entrusted different things to each of us. But there is one thing that is true for every single one of us here one commonality that God has placed something in every single one of our hands that's consistent for all of us, and it's experiences. In all of our hands today, God has placed what we'll just simply call experiences. Now, some of you, as you consider looking backwards the different experiences that you've had, some of the experiences were great. They were amazing. Some experiences that you've had, they were confusing. They were perplexing to you. Some of the experiences that you had maybe were frustrating, if not maddening. And I'm guessing for a lot of us here, some of the experiences that we've had to navigate through have been tragic. And I'm also guessing that some of the experiences that we've had, we would just put in the category of they were really messed up experiences. And what I mean by messed up experiences, I'm talking about the experiences that we've had as a result of just us being sinful sinners, of made really sinful or selfish choices that not only impacted us, but also impacted those around us. Again, it's safe to say that in a room this size, the amount of experiences that we've all had would clearly cover the spectrum. Now, as I read through the New Testament, one of the titles that Scripture likes to refer to Jesus as is the author of life. So I want to ask the question, well, what is the author of life doing with all of these experiences that he's put in our hands just for now? If Jesus is the author of all of our stories, all of the experiences that we have in our stories, what is the author of life doing with all of these experiences that He's put in our hands just for now? Now, to me, this is a really good question that we should wrestle with, but it also sparks another question or another concept or idea of ownership. Meaning, the experiences you've had who do they actually belong to? Do they belong to you or do they belong to God? Because we live in a world that loves to claim ownership as much as we possibly can. And we use language like, this is my money, this is my car, this is my house, this is my career, this is my education, this is my marriage, these are my kids this is my relationship, boyfriend or girlfriend, this is my body, this is my… you fill in the blank. But we live in a culture that loves to claim ownership, and in our attempt to be owners over everything, I wonder if we've convinced ourselves that these experiences that God has placed in our hands just for now, well, these are my experiences." Mine and mine alone. But as I read the scriptures, I meet character after character whose experiences first and foremost belong to God. Let's think for a moment on this question of how do we know that God is faithful? Like, how do you know that? How do you know that God is forgiving? How do you know that God is generous? How do you know that God is gracious or loving or powerful? How do you know that God is healing? I think some would seem to say, well, Michael, the Bible tells us that God is these things and so much more. But isn't it through the experiences of others that we learn of who God is and what God is like? And what I love specifically about the Scriptures is there's no creative editing in these experiences. Now, since, like, social media has become a thing over the past decade, it's amazing how we can creatively edit ourselves to present ourselves in a way that makes us look as good as we possibly can. But when I read the Scriptures, there is absolutely no creative editing. The Bible doesn't shrink back from sharing the true experiences That people had and how they experienced and encountered God through that. Consider two individuals, David and Samuel. David was a king of Israel, and Samuel was known as a prophet. And I envision the the day where Samuel's like, hey, David, I've been writing a lot of these things down of your story and been writing down chronicling kind of the history of the different battles that you have, have been part of and had been in. I want to read you some of these things. And David, as he's listening to what Samuel wrote about him and the things that were happening to the people of God and the nation of Israel, David is being presented as this powerful poet, this powerful warrior, and now powerful king. But Samuel's like, hey, David, I'm in now chapter 11 of my second book called 2 Samuel. Let me read to you that. And David says, yeah, I'd love to hear what's chapter 11 about. Samuel reads, in the spring of that year, when kings normally go out to war, David sent Joab and the Israelite army to fight the Ammonites. And I envision David starting to think, "Uh, Samuel, hang on a second, where are you going with this story? Samuel's like, well, let me read on. And David stayed in Jerusalem. Late one afternoon, after his midday rest, David got out of his bed and was walking on the roof of the palace. As he looked out over the city, he noticed a woman of unusual beauty taking a bath. And as you read the rest of Second Samuel chapter 11, Samuel chronicles the decision that David made upon seeing this woman of unusual beauty taking a bath. He calls her to his room, commits adultery with her even though he knows that she's a married woman. And in order to cover up this adulterous affair, he decides to have her husband murdered. Are we not thankful that we learn about David's messed up, his sinful, selfish experience that he had there? Are we not thankful that there was no creative editing in scripture to somehow present David as this God fearing individual who never made any sinful, selfish choices in his life? Are we not thankful? that through one man's experience, we get to learn about God's grace. We get to learn about God's restoration. We get to learn about God's patience and God's faithfulness. Or maybe consider two other individuals, an individual named Paul and his good friend Luke. And Luke comes to Paul one day and says, hey, you've been writing a lot of letters to churches. I want you to know I've been writing some things too. I'd love to read it to you. And Luke wrote his own gospel account, and as Paul's hearing this, he's like, Luke, great stuff, so encouraged by what you're telling people about Jesus. Well, I, I wrote a follow-up to that called Acts. Let me read that to you. And as he gets to Acts chapter 8, it says, Saul, whose name was later changed to Paul, was one of the witnesses, and he agreed completely with the killing of Stephen. I envision Paul saying, Luke, man, man. Why do you need to tell people about that? Man, that was not my proudest moment. Why do you need to tell every single person that's going to read your letter about how I was standing there saying, yes, kill this man? Are we not thankful that we catch a glimpse of what Paul was like before he became the Apostle Paul? Don't we find hope in his transformation? Or consider Peter? And the gospel writers envision in my mind uh, Peter getting together with all the gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and saying, guys, what is up? Every single one of you need to tell the world about how I denied Jesus? Like, every… I mean, he reads Matthew's account, and he says, Peter swore a curse on me if I'm lying. I don't know the man." Peter asking, guys, can we not just put this maybe in like the maps section of the Bible so no one will look and read that? Like, do you really need to put it in every single one of your accounts? But aren't we grateful that the account of Peter's experience of denying even knowing Jesus three times, are we not thankful that that wasn't edited out? Are we not greatly encouraged in knowing that even after walking with Jesus, for three and a half years, getting to see the miracles up close and personal, getting to witness the teachings and all that Jesus did, are we not grateful to see that Peter, after all of that, still had a hard time identifying himself as one who followed Christ? And aren't we filled with inspiration that Peter's story is not shaped by one sinful, selfish moment, But that God actually used that and redeemed that for Peter, who was not ruled out of the game, but actually God used that to make him one of the best leaders in the first century church. Now, you might be tempted to be like, well, Michael, these are other people writing about these other people's experiences. They didn't have control over that. All right, well, fair point. So let me talk about Moses writing about Moses. In 2019, we spent the better part of the year walking through the story of Exodus. And time and time and time again, in the first six chapters of Exodus, Moses talks about his struggles and his fears. He says in Exodus 6, verse 30, but Moses argued with the Lord saying, I can't do it. Like, God, what you're wanting me to do, I just can't do it. God, you're wanting me to go back to Egypt. You're wanting me to lead all these people out. God, I cannot do Do the very thing you want me to do. Are we not thankful that Moses did not creatively edit out his own fears about being used by God? Are we not thankful that Moses gave us a glimpse into his own struggles of actually arguing with God? Or what about Job writing about Job? If you have ever read the story of Job in the Old Testament, it begins with Job lost everything. His kids died all of them, everything that he owned was wiped out. And I love how Job chronicles his date night with his wife. He goes out with his wife, and his wife says, you should just curse God and die. Are we not thankful that Job allowed us into that moment? Or the moment where Job says in in the 23rd chapter, if I go to the east, he's not there. If I go to the west, I do not find him. When he's at work in the, in the north, I do not see him. When he turns to the south, I catch no glimpse of him. Like, aren't we thankful that Job didn't edit out of his own story in his own words, I have no idea what God is doing. My experience of God right now is utterly perplexing and confusing. I cannot make sense of what God is doing. And then Job, at the very end of his story, writes this, I had only heard about you before, but now I have seen you with my own eyes. I take back everything I said. I sit in dust and ashes to show my repentance. Are we not thankful that Job allowed us into his suffering? we Are not thankful that Job allowed us into the questions that he was asking of God? And are we not thankful that Job allowed us into his humility and to his repentance? See, the reality is I could go on and on with this because the Bible is filled with experiences that men and women had, of, that they had, that ultimately shaped how they walked with God, consequently shaped how we also walk with God. So let me ask the question again, how will you use the variety of experiences in your hands to invest in the kingdom of God? No longer how will we use the experiences, but specifically, how will we use the experiences in our hands to invest in the kingdom of God? Meaning, how can you and I take all the experiences that we've had to help people see the king and to help people see his kingdom? I think the one thing that prevents us from sharing our experiences, from being generous with our experiences, is... And I I mean every experience, from the experience of our sinful, selfish choices, to our suffering that makes us look very vulnerable, to the experience of just struggles that we had to trust and believe. I think the reason that we often don't share or are generous with our experiences is we're simply afraid of what people will think of us and what people will say of us. I think that's what gets in our way of being generous with our experiences. I'm scared to death of what you might think of me if you know what I've done, if you know what I've gone through, if you've known the struggles I've had, I'm scared to death of what you might say about me. I'll be the first to admit I care about what you all think of me. There's something in me that wants you to think, man, that guy's got an incredible walk with God. Man, he just walks in such deep faith. There's something in me that wants you to have the perception to think of me of like, man, what a husband you are. What a great dynamic, flourishing marriage that you have. There's something in me that wants all of you to think, man, what a great dad you are. I see the way you are with your kids and how you engage and love them and spend time. I want you to think certain things of me. I'm not sure we'll ever get to the place of not caring about what others think. And to be very honest with you, I'm pretty sure that shouldn't even be our goal of getting to the place where I just don't care what you think, I think our goal, our aim is simply this, helping all people see the King and His kingdom. Helping every single person in our lives see the King and His kingdom. Because if God can use our experiences, the good ones and the hard ones and the messy ones, to help a few people see Jesus, who He is, what He's like, and see His kingdom, its beauty and its power... Well, I'm then confident that this is why God has placed these experiences in our hands. For me, I'm very thankful that God has allowed me the opportunity to share many experiences I've had along the way. Experiences of serious seasons and bouts of depression that I've gone through. I'm thankful that I've been given an opportunity to share that with people because I've seen that they've found some levels of comfort and hope and joy And not knowing that there's an end to depression, but that Jesus actually meets you in the midst of that depression and gives you a joy that you didn't have before. I'm thankful that God has given me opportunities to experience bouts of just anger. And when I talk about anger, I'm not the guy that you'll ever really catch swearing and cussing and kicking and having hissy fits and punching walls. That's not how anger showed up for me Anger showed up for me where it just consumed my mind, consumed my heart in the way that I would think about situations and people, and I just noticed the anger that was just dwelling, residing in my heart, just hardened my heart towards God, but hardened my heart towards people. So I'm thankful for those experiences that I've been able to share with people, know that God can actually take a hard heart and soften it, that He can take a hard heart and He can redeem it. I'm thankful for each of those experiences, but what's hard about being generous with our experiences is that fear kicks in. I just don't want to talk about these experiences because I'm afraid, scared to death of how you will perceive me moving forward. I don't want to share my experiences because I can't Even think about how this might forever change our friendship and relationship if you knew some of the things that I have done or gone through or experienced. But the problem with that line of thinking is if we don't share the experiences that God has placed in our hands, and I mean even the really messed up ones where our sin and our selfishness is just front and center, then the people will miss out on hearing about the redeeming grace of God And his amazing, unconditional love that he has for us. If we're selfish with the experiences that God has placed in our hands, then the people in our lives will miss out on seeing what God can do his power, his healing, his redemption, his restoration, his reconciliation. And let's be honest with this. Do any one of us actually think to ourselves, you know what, I can't even read the Psalms, they make me sick? because they were written by that guy David who committed adultery. You know what? Come to think of it, I can't even read the first five books of the Bible because they were written by that murderer named Moses. Do any one of us say, you know what? I can't even read the book of Job. Man, what's up with that guy? All the questions and the struggles that he was having, I can't even read that. that... How many of us think to ourselves, and that guy Paul, who wrote about two-thirds of the New Testament, I can't even read any letter that he wrote because of his murderous background. I think the reality is that we don't think differently about these people because we don't see them through the lens of what they've done. We see them through the lens of what God has done. I don't think about Moses and David and Job and Peter or Paul through the lens of what they've done. I see these Men and women in Scripture through the lens now of what God has done. One of the things that I love about the Apostle Paul is how generous he was with his story. In a letter that he wrote to a young pastor named Timothy, he says this, This is a trustworthy saying. Everyone should accept it. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, and I, Timothy, I'm the worst of them all. But he goes on to say, but God had mercy on me so that Christ Jesus could use me as a prime example. He could use my experience as a prime example of His great patience with even the worst sinners. See, Paul clearly understood that his story, his experiences were all being used by God to help other people see Jesus and His kingdom. Today might be the last day that we gather here. I'm not promised tomorrow, and neither are you. This might be, for some, our last gathering here. And I don't say that in some morbid way. But I am reminded afresh over these past two weeks that, Michael, I'm not kidding. Your next breath is not guaranteed Your next moment is not guaranteed, nonetheless, just the next week. And this should not cause any one of us to live in just great fear, but great expectancy and great urgency. So the last question I just want us to consider is simply this, who needs to experience the gospel through your experience of the gospel? Who in your life needs to experience the gospel? And when I say the gospel, I mean... God's grace, His mercy, His patience, His faithfulness, His generosity, His kindness. Who in your life needs to experience the fullness of the gospel through your experience of the gospel? Maybe someone at work, maybe someone in your own home, maybe someone you study with, take classes with, but who is one person that this week You could simply share your experience of the gospel so that they, in turn, could experience the gospel. I think a lot of us are like, Michael, I don't even know what to say. That would be such an overwhelming conversation. I just don't even know where to begin and and how to start a conversation with that. There's a story in, in Luke's gospel of a man whose name we do not know. We just know that he was possessed by a legion, which means a lot of demons. He meets Jesus. Jesus heals him and sets him free. And his reaction and his response to receiving the gospel, receiving the power of Jesus in his life, he comes to Jesus and simply says, Jesus, I want to go with you. Wherever you go, I'm going. I want to follow you. Wherever you're going to be, that's exactly where I want to be. And you know what Jesus' response was? No. This is Jesus' response to this request in Luke 8. The man who had been freed from the demons begged to go with him, but Jesus sent him home saying, No, go back to your family and tell them everything God has done for you. Jesus said, I don't want you to follow me geographically where I'm going next. I'm sending you back home to your family, to your friends, to your neighbors, to your community with one simple but transformational message. Tell them what God has done for you. Who needs to experience the gospel through your experience of the gospel?